You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, people, the gentleman on my show today is an amazing singer, songwriter, musician. He has a big show coming up, a live stream show on December 19th on uh, sessionslive.com. And through my research, I, I read that I think he's a big uh, hockey buff, which I want to talk to him about because I'm a big Flyers fan. And my guest is Tom Cochran. How you doing, Tom? Hey, Steve. It's good to be on your show, buddy. Yeah, so, you're, coming from, you're not coming from Philly, though, are you? You're coming from L.A. No, I, I, li- I, I lived in L.A. I live 10 minutes outside <laughs> Philly now. I, uh, <laughs> no, right. who, who's your hockey team? I know you. I read you're a big buff. Who's your team? Well, you know, being <laughs> being up here and being pretty popular in, in, in most of my home country, all of my home country, it, it's it's tough sticking my neck out. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of a number of teams, so I hate to be kind of coy, but, uh, uh, you know, Oilers, you know, because I, I kind of hung out with those guys during the run and, run and gun Oiler period, you know, with the, with Gretz and, and in particular with Messier and or, uh, Coffee and Messier and uh, Kevin Lowe. So I love those guys, and so I'm an Oiler fan. Uh, I like the Jets, but but I'm I'd have to say that I'm a pretty hardcore Maple Leaf fan these days. So <laughs> yeah, are, it's so funny. Tend to be Yeah, it's it's funny because you know I, I'm a, I've been a Flyers fan my whole life, and I lived in Los Angeles when the Kings were winning the Stanley Cups a few years back. And I would tell bars to put hockey on before the Kings were popular. They say, "Oh no, this is LA. We don't watch hockey." And then two right. years later, the same damn bars. The bartenders are wearing Kings jersey. I'm like, come on, ladies. You know, there, there's you're, you're being hypocrites here. I mean, I'll tell you, they're probably one of the most hated teams in the NHL. So you guys have to, you got to be pretty brave to stick your neck out when you're when you're outside of Philly to say you're a, a Flyers fan. But I love the fly. I love the, like Claude is is a fan, I guess, of the music. I mean, remember I got tagged on Twitter and. Uh, we follow each other, and I have a great deal of respect for uh, Claude Giroux. I think he's an incredible hockey player and an incredible man. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I think in one of his interviews, <laughs> I think one of the one of the broadcasters in Philly was saying, "Is this for real?" Because he kept asking him questions. That this is last season when they had come through a long protracted slump, and then they went on a winning streak. And he kept quoting. Life's a highway. <laughs> Every question that he would ask me, quote, quote him, life is a highway. And, the, and then just kind of walked away at the end of the interview. So I thought that was pretty funny. It was, uh, was kind of cool that, that, he, that Claude was doing that. So, But, yeah, I, I, um, I respect the Flyers a lot. Good, good. Now, I got to ask you, you know, it, there's, there's been a lockdown, a pandemic. You know, I know you have the show coming up uh, on the 19th. It's live stream. How much do you miss performing? Because you've been doing this for so long. You've been performing for so long. Is it like a piece of your life has been taken when you've had to stay at home? Yeah, man. I mean, it's like uh, a bad metaphor would be, uh, yeah, it's, it's taking taking my breath away, taking my band's breath away. You know, uh, uh, that's a terrible metaphor, I suppose. But it's like a piece of you is not... uh, it's hard. It's really hard. It's been, this is the longest any of us have gone, uh, long as I've gone anyways, for 40 years, uh, without playing, uh, which is over, coming up to a year and another six days. So in a sense, this concert is to kind of celebrate the one, one year anniversary of not playing, but actually playing and, uh, you know, celebrating freedom, not, not specifically in regards to, uh, the pandemic, obviously, but, 
just the fact that um, you know uh, I, I just just we want to celebrate something and this time you know maybe the end of the 2020 because it's been a very strange year for a lot of people for all of us and uh, you know kind of a, a weird year so coming out of that and we, we figured it was it was good it would be good for the morale of the band good for the morale of the fans to uh, to do a show like this and um, so we're excited about doing it um, it, it's I gotta, gotta be honest with you though Steve it's it's very strange you know we're, we're we decided to do it in Belleville which is what we use up here in Canada we have a code system for uh, you know for the for the kind of pressure they're under in terms of, of uh, COVID and Belleville's doing really really well so we're allowed to have 50 people socially distanced of course and, and very respectful of, of uh, COVID uh, uh, restrictions and people will be wearing masks and socially distance coming in but we will have 50 people in the theater if we'd done it in Toronto we wouldn't have been able to do that we would have had plexiglass between the players and stuff so it sort of would have been self-defeating and and we had also thought about doing this something like this more in January February but I think it's pretty appropriate to kind of come you know into the Christmas season and and uh and end the year with with a show to bring the band together and, and remind ourselves we still know how to play these songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, you're used to playing to bigger crowds. You know, going back to in front of 50 people probably takes you back to the beginning of your career when you were playing in bars. How do you, I mean, because you're excited to play, but how do you sit there and get in the mood because it's still, it's 50 people. You probably haven't played in front of 50 people since wow. maybe saying a toast at a wedding. Yeah, well, fifty people would have been a pretty good crowd back in our early <laughs> club days. So, so we'll we'll look at it that way, and, and uh, hopefully we'll you know we'll get some energy off them. And, and uh, I think it's more natural than playing without without people there. So it'll be good. And I actually did uh, a show about a month and a half ago at the Burlington Performing Arts Center, which is outside of Toronto, uh, before they were under any any kind of uh, extended restrictions before the second wave so-called second wave that we're all going through you guys are going through it down there we're going through it up here and bill and i played to 40 people there uh acoustically bill bell a dear friend of mine he's he's we do a lot of acoustic stuff together when i do acoustic shows so uh and that was fun it was it was you know i had nightmares you know prior to doing this show about forgetting words and uh and you know i was this one nightmare where, where Toronto was like a third world city and and it was apocalyptic and I'm running around and people are saying you can't come in here because of COVID and I'm looking for the band and you know we got a half an hour before we're doing a live show on CBC and and all this stuff and I'm going where's Bill and I can't remember my words and stuff and uh, it, it's funny the stuff that uh, that goes through your mind that, that you're haunted by when you don't play when when it's be, you know become part of your lifeblood really it's it's part of your uh, your existence and almost more than ever you know i know back in the 80s it was a means to to get back in the studio uh you know because talking about the club days it was pretty traumatic when people would be yelling for led zeppelin and aerosmith and throwing bottles at you and you're trying to do your original material back in the late 70s early 80s and then um you know then the first record you know we got a little bit of daylight on that record and, and, and white hot sort of became a mid chart hit on billboard. And then that kind of gave you a pass to make another record and then another record. And you're always kind of working towards putting that one foot ahead of the other. And, 
and trying to make the next record. And, and uh, you know, the one foot ahead of the other, all of a sudden you look behind you, you've got a body of work and you've got a career and you've got uh, uh, a legacy. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, you just keep going. And, and, and it's, um, you know, back then I wanted to get back in the studio, always back in the studio to create. Now it's, it's, it's back to the, the, the origins of rock and roll where, where it's about live for us. It really is about playing live. And even, you know, when I sit down and write a song, it's all, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of visualize playing it live. And, and uh, so it's interesting. It's like being that 15 year old back in the garage, you know, starting out playing with your friends, you know, and, and, and jamming to the, to the birds and the, and the stones and the beetles. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, you kind of try to tap into that, that, that kid in you that, that gets on stage. And, you know, I know playing with Springsteen a few years ago, that's what he does. And that's so inspiring about, about that timelessness that he brings to the, to the show. And, and uh, that's what I try to do. And we try to do that as a band. Now, what made you pick up the guitar as a kid? I mean, you know, I always think growing up in Canada, it's a lot of hockey. Like here, it was a lot of football. I sucked at football. I sucked at guitar. So I ended up doing stand-up comedy later in my life. But what made you pick up the guitar for the first time? You know what, Steve? I got to be honest with you. Everybody was in a band. I wasn't particularly good at, at, at football. I was an okay. I was a pretty good hockey player. You know, played in you know a lot of junior teams, peewee teams, Bantam, midget, and then uh, music kind of took over. And all of a sudden, I realized I think I got my. I sold my dad's train set when I was about eleven, and I got my first guitar wasn't a particularly good deal got ripped off on that i've never been a good businessman and uh but i bought my first guitar and and then i realized i was uh, pretty good at um at making uh, you know writing po- writing poetry and uh, uh you know it, i kind of merged the two and and um you know it seemed like everybody's in a band we used to have battles of the band in junior high school and all that stuff and um you know i just kind of i was i don't think i was ever the best at what I did. There's so many guys that were really good at duplicating whoever, whoever it was that they were trying to play like, whether it was the Kinks or, or uh, Deep Purple or the Beatles or the Stones or whatever. And, and I always sort of had a quirky, you know, if I tried to, if I tried to, to do a cover song, I'd always end up forgetting the words and making up my own. So that's, uh, that's kind of how, how songwriting works. You know, you always, try to do stuff maybe like like the people you admire but it always turns it turns out kind of like like something that you invented and um so there you go now when you you know when you were songwriting at that age was was there a direction you wanted to go in you know did you want to go more folky acoustic did you want to go rock what was your you know as you were writing songs because you said now you you visualize them playing them live so you've been playing for a long time so you know how to do it but back then when I, I, I was totally caught up like everybody was with the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles really captivated me. Prior to that, I, I would listen to a lot of Motown stuff because I had older sisters, and that's what they listened to. And and even, you know, uh, people like Chubby Checker and, you know, kind of more some of the fat-oriented stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I'd listen to the, you know, uh, the Supremes and, and uh, you know, a lot of the Phil Spector artists and that, and, and the Chantels and, and and you know, and then I got into the Beatles, and it, I was just hooked. At first, I thought, "Man, these are the weirdest dudes," and I, it was a 
was not into it. And I bought, I bought the first record at the drugstore. That's how old I am. You know, we were buying our records at drugstores. So, uh, you know, and I bought uh, uh, Beatlemania at the drugstore. And that was, I was just hooked. And so the Beatles, then after the Beatles, then I, I got, you know, into the birds. And, and uh, the birds were just huge for me. And, and then, of course, Bob Dylan. So I think Mr. Tambourine Man, I think with Bob Dylan... And that whole wave, it really made me realize that this was something I could, I wanted to do. It was more than just, you know, writing, you know, boy-girl love songs. You know, there was there was a way of, of, of writing with a lot of depth. And, and I wanted to become a journalist. Um, and and I, I, I saw a way of kind of melding the two and, and telling stories in, in songs and not just one-dimensional kind of pop songs that, that you could explore different subjects and of course you can hear that in a lot of my stuff now whether it's lunatic fringe or or uh, or white hot or, or big league you know these songs uh have narratives to them and they, they kind of go beyond standard you know uh, subjects of boy girl and love and, and that which are relevant too and i've i do my fair share of those songs <laughs> but um it, it's uh it, it always it started to fascinate me from an early age at the possibilities of taking the music and songs in different directions and, and, and having impact and getting people to feel and think and and uh, and you know through through the music and that that was kind of important to me. We well, mentioned Lunatic Fringe. How did Red Rider get together? How did you guys start up? Well, you know, I, I prior to Red Rider, I was in a band called Harvest because. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say after Dylan, uh, the band, you know, we, we were huge band fans. And, and my, my late friend, Dean Cameron, and I, we, we started a band and we called it Harvest. And we, we, we did a lot of band material, a lot of Dylan material. I remember getting thrown out of a club in Gananoque, Ontario. And, and, you know, kids are running out of there going, don't go in there, a country band, you know, <laughs> because that's how they perceived of the band's music. Because, you know, and we did that. We did Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So a lot of folk-based stuff. I mean, and I didn't really acknowledge that until later. And then I started playing coffee houses a few years later. But um, you know, it was the band. The band. We dressed like them. We we acted like them. We we had blue black shirts. You know, we we uh, before black jeans even came on the scene, we were dying our jeans black. I mean, even got a blood infection and one, one of my legs from the dye of these black <laughs> jeans that we had we, we dye with writ dye and um and really tight jeans and hunting boots and and that was kind of our look and and you know it's funny because all the kids man, every so many of the kids were into zeppelin and they were into a lot of the british bands and there we were doing our our, our country rock folk rock band <laughs> thing and uh, roots music and uh but they respected us, nonetheless. They kind of thought, "Man, these guys are really weird." But we don't want to mess with them because they look—they kind of look mean. They look so odd. We, you know, we don't want to mess with them. They look very odd. So, uh, uh, in in kind of a heavy way. So, if you know, and, and the band really appealed to us because it was a we we just kind of naturally were attached to the the that 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 basic kind of um, rootsy this other world that existed back in the 1800s. It was more of a frontier world. I mean, that, that kind of really attracted us. And, and we were, we were, we loved the country and we used to go camping and, and, we, you know, 
Dean's family had a cabin up north and, and on Eagle Lake and stuff, and we'd go up and hang out there and stuff and make our music. So that really appealed to us, and that was a big, big part of our de- development. Then after that band broke up, then I got into the acoustic stuff, and I started playing coffee houses, and, and the, that whole scene kind of took off and played the riverboat a lot. And uh, Dylan was kind of it for me, really important influence. Leonard Cohen, um, a guy named Bruce Coburn was a huge influence out of Canada for me. And so I went off in that direction and, and that's always been sort of part of what I, what I did. You know, we started early, like, you know, there's that period prior to the uh, harvest where we did a lot of blues. You know, I was, my band was called the St. Thomas blues band just prior to that when I was like 16 and um, playing, you know, what we call drop-in centers. You know, a lot of the churches figured we'd keep the kids out of trouble and off the streets by having these drop-in centers at the churches and, Little did they know there was a lot of dope being smoked in those <laughs> drop-in centers and stuff. But, um, yeah, so we played a lot of those. Rush played those as well. I mean, uh, it, that just seemed to – I don't know if it was a, a, a Toronto thing at that point, uh, these drop-in centers, but um, a lot of bands got, you know, cut their teeth in those those places, and, and we were one of them prior. So that was, you know, prior to Harvest, and then through Harvest we played some of those places as well. Then I developed into, into this uh, folk artist and, and wanted to go to college. Did one year of college at Humber. I was taking music there. I wanted to take, uh, I was going to take journalism at, at Ryerson. And then then I got sidetracked. I made this record on weekends through Terry Brown, who produced um, Rush, and, and he let us use the studio for free. Um, and we, we ended up making a record there. And that was the first Cochrane record, it was Hang On To Your Resistance. And it was a lot of acoustic guitar and, and uh, you know, pretty, pretty kind of basic and essential songs. And, and so that the career went off from there and, and I, you know, didn't look back. So I didn't go to college. So I started playing pubs and that and then in the summer and, and clubs in the summer. And then the summer turned into the endless summer, you know, just it was one thing after another and kept moving ahead with that. And then I, um, uh, as well. And, and, you know, accrued out on a, on a boat for a while. It wasn't a cruise ship. Everybody thinks I was a waiter on a cruise ship or something. But it was a racing class catamaran. So I did that for a little bit. And, uh, yeah, and just we kept writing my songs, moved to L.A. and wore out my knuckles banging on doors of publishers and that and didn't get anywhere, you know. So um, it's funny how things happen. You know, we, we came through the back door later. When I joined Red Rider a few, you know, quite a few years later, like four years later, and, and ended up signing a deal through Los Angeles, even though uh, we got a and through Capitol Records in Canada. But it was a um, backdoor deal because they had run out of budget in Canada, and, and Dean uh, played her stuff for Rupert Perry, who ironically enough worked with the band. Um, and so we ended up signing uh, a deal with Capitol Records through Los Angeles, but again, it was sort of and by the Canadian A&R company. Yeah. I got to ask you, what was the difference from going from playing coffee shops to pubs? I mean, and clubs. It must have been night and day. Because, you know, you think of coffee shops, everyone's chill. I mean, as a performer, I mean, did you really get your, you get the chops up playing at those bars? Yeah, I mean, I did. It was, you know, there was a lot of breaking of guitar strings and, embarrassing moments and and uh yeah it was it, some of those clubs were, were were very tense and i remember ross reynolds from came out from a record company and um 
uh, I guess it was an MCA or whichever company he was with. And he says, you know, I, I think you're really a rocker at heart. You know, I, I think you should be in a, in a band, you know, the, the way you approach things. Cause you know, and when I got back and started back into playing with bands and joined Red Rider, I thought, you know, this is, uh, this is what I want to do. And, and when I got back with them, these guys, they appealed to me because they were kind of, um, pretty sophisticated musicians and and i wasn't i was a basic singer songwriter and two of the guys in the band really wanted me in the band that was ken greer and peter boynton the other guys not so much because they kind of fashioned themselves as being uh jazz players they wanted to explore that side of things they they wanted to be more of a, a, a jazz a jazz jam band rock you know hybrid and i wanted you know and i was a real kind of roots writer at that point that that was uh, where I was coming from, and pretty primitive, you know. I mean, remember Arvo Lepp, the other guitar player in the band. You know, he said, "Give me that damn guitar. I got to show you how to tune it properly, and and show me how to, you know, back loop the strings so that they wouldn't slip and things like that." So, you know, learned some of the, the tricks of the trade from those guys, and um, uh, you know, and, and you know, we went through some personnel changes because a lot of people that we had on, on bass and in particular we went through about four bass players before jeff jones joined the band and um you know they they wanted to do stuff that was more progressive you know more funk more jazz and uh, and i was pretty pretty basic songwriter you know i wanted to you know i was a troubadour at, at heart and, and that was the essence of what i did now Lunatic Fringe. That's that's when I was introduced to you. And, you know, because I was, I'm 57. I'm 57. I was watching MTV, and we saw the <laughs> video. And the kid, brother. Yeah, and then we all saw uh, the movie because of the Vision Quest. But that song, you know, it it was so much different than a lot of 80s songs because you know 80s songs had that more upbeat, and you have the beginning. Did you guys, when you created this, when you created a song like that? Did you just say, we're going to do this, and if the record company doesn't like it, the hell with them? Because it was different, especially different than when MTV was playing. Yeah. Um, Lunatic Fringe, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, i I, I got to think very carefully about this. There was some stuff that was going on that was re- really disturbing to me, and I'd always been, you know, a, a pretty vociferous reader you know i wrote a lot of stuff and, and kept up on history and um you know we were going through a lot of stuff back in, in at that point in the early 80s that really disturbed me and uh you know uh, fanatic groups you know uh, uh, that were trying to you know uh, take control and, and kind of force their opinion on people and that and so i i, I kind of sat down i said enough of this you know this and I wrote that song, and it uh, it basically speaks out against, you know, people trying to get their means through violence, you know, and, and smaller groups, fanatic groups trying to get their means through through violence. And when you listen to the lyrics, it's pretty self-explanatory that way. And, um, you know, it's it, in some ways, it, it's a weird thing, Steve. It's a dichotomy of, of, of emotions for me because on the one hand, I'm proud of the song. On the other hand, I wish the song wasn't as topical and as important today as it was then, you know. Um, you know, the song says something that's important to say and, and says something about uh, the 
tribal nature of, of, of the human condition. And, um, uh, you know, I kind of wish that we, we had, we, we would grow as people in a race and learn how to live together. And, and, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was topical back then. And, and uh, unfortunately in some ways it's still just as topical. It's not uh, a nostalgia piece. Um, but all that stuff aside, I'm very proud of the, uh, the fact that the song is extremely unique in terms of the composition of it. There's no real chorus in the song. And when I wrote the song, we demoed it and management and record company, they're all going, what is this? You know, like, why don't you just write some, pop- let's get down to making some money, write some pop songs. And I'm going through a tremendous amount of pressure with this. And we demoed the song. And the night we demoed the song, Fraser Hill, my dear buddy, and, you know, known each other for a long time. Um, he was, he was a junior engineer. So he was demoing the song with us and, and he came on, he said, John Lennon's been shot. And I said, man, that's not funny. That's a bad joke. And the irony is that in, in that song, there's parts in there that are, were influenced by shave fish and, and plastic Ono band. Cause I was a huge John Lennon fan. And tragically enough, it was, it was true. And I thought it, it inspired me from the point of view. I thought here was a guy that to me anyways, you know, not knowing him personally, but John Lennon was a guy who wore his heart on his sleeve. He, 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 he you know, he let people know how he felt. Uh, uh, and there was a certain courage about some of the stuff he was exploring and, and the music he was writing. And I thought, for better or for worse, this song's probably not going to do anything, but it's going to stand the way it is. And we released it, and of course, the rest is history. I think it was number one for 12 straight weeks on, on the vaunted AOR chart, you know, and, and um, uh, Friday morning quarterback and all those trades back then that were the rock trades, you know. Uh, the, song, the song got kind of steamrolled by uh, uh, the indies back then that were the, the, the hit men back then that, that, that would give songs the seal of approval, whether those songs would kind of make that transition from the rock format over to mainstream radio. And I think we got kind of squeezed out because of politics. I know that. And, but anyways, the song still just had a tremendous uh, impact and then became one of those legacy songs, you know, still played a lot down there and all over the world. And uh, the song still has a tremendous amount of impact. Um, And, you know, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the, composition of the song the herald horns in it that that uh were like air you know fanfare of the modern man by aaron copeland and then then the ha, 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 which is very shave fish very very you know plastic ono band by, by john lennon as i mentioned before and there's no real chorus in it you know it's uh it's a very unique piece of music that way there's there's no you can't point at another. The other in, influence on it too, the, the the riff that I played throughout the song was influenced. Another guy I listened to a lot was J.J. Kale. So believe, I mean, you can't really tell that when you listen to it, but there is a J.J. Kale influence in that song as well. That that uh, you know because I, I was very inspired by his work. I mean, not nothing that I lifted from any of his songs or anything like that, but just just the inspiration of of, of that sort of mid tempo and that the. the uh, 
kind of the phrasing of, of the guitar a little bit. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, so that song really had a lot of impact in the States at that point. And who would have thought that would have been the song that would have you know, kind of broken Red Rider and, um, led to a bunch of tours and, and, uh, right up until probably, you know, Life's a Highway was, was, was massive, obviously as, as a, as a hit. Um, and then back in the, back in 2003 or four, Life's a Highway was still up there, but Lunatic Fringe was right there with it in terms of airplay and popularity. And then, of course, Rascal Flatts covered Life as a Highway, and that that all of a sudden, you know, was like a booster rocket and gave it another another shot, and, and Life's a Highway is what it is. But um, Lunatic Fringe just had that, uh, you know, I'm proud of it. I, I've always tried, Steve, like even with White Hot, I, I just love playing White Hot still. Um I've always tried to write timeless songs. You were saying earlier there was nothing else like it out there, right? There's nothing else really was like White Hot either. So, you know, I've always tried to write songs that kind of uh, were timeless, and you don't always achieve it, you know, uh, obviously. Uh, but every once in a while with those songs, with White Hot, with Lunatic Fringe, with Human Race, to me, the whole album, uh, I'm very proud of that record um, that we did. Ruta album. Very proud of that record. And Boy Inside the Man, Big League. These are kind of timeless songs and they still have a, a uh, they still to me and to, to a lot of people I would hope uh, have a certain relevance today that um, that make them a, a joy to play in a lot of ways, right? So um, I'm, I'm proud of that, but I always tried to do that. I tried not to get too caught up in what are the, whatever the trends were. You always listen to them. You go back to listen to some of those records. The production, you know, the, the big uh, PCM seventy snare reverb and all that stuff. I mean, it, I kind of cringe at some of the production because it's pretty over the top. But but all that aside, I think the songs as songs were were pretty kind of uh, uh, relevant. A lot of them then stood the test of time. Some didn't, and they fell by the wayside. But um, a lot of them stood the test of time. We you mentioned Red Rider, uh, Lunatic Fringe was on the charts for 12 weeks, number one. So basically your life changed. But what, what I'm thinking, which cracks me up, is everyone probably said he's an overnight success because people always do that. They don't see how long you've been you know, right. working on your craft. How did your life change when it became a big hit? I mean, did you all of a sudden sit there? Were you getting recognized where you went because there was video play? I mean, how did it change your life? Um, which life's a highway or fringe? Uh, fringe. Lunatic Fringe changed uh, so much. Not as much Life's Highway. Life's Highway is a whole different thing. A whole different uh, train rolling down the tracks, right? Um, but Lunatic Fringe just had that... Like, we, we talked to friends, not to name any names. Well, well why not? I mean, Loverboy would tell the story anyways. They used to go on stage to open for ZZ Top, for instance, and have people, you know... A shower of people throwing stuff at them because they weren't perceived of as being a heavy band. Incredible band. Love those guys. Good friends. As a matter of fact, the whole Madman World Tour, that was Matt Matt Frenette, the drummer from Loverboy on drums. For four years, he was, he was my drummer. Possibly one of the best drummers ever. One of the best rock drummers. People don't realize that. It was Spider Sineve on bass. So those guys started in a band called Streetheart. But, um, but you know, uh, 
it's it's kind of you know that's that's another evolution i mean lunatic fringe was was the kind of song that that, that that a lot of people respected i mean peter wolf we learn a lot from peter wolf like that that tour touring with jay giles was amazing and i have so much respect for peter wolf and he came into the dressing room in um in detroit joe lewis arena and with two bottles of champagne and very very polite nice guy and, and we were kind of in awe of him because you know i really admired jay giles and they were you know freeze frame it was a huge record for them that was this juggernaut was taken off for them and he came in and he said tell me what lunatic fringe is about you know he's very curious a lot of people don't know the history of peter wolf he started a dj i guess in boston right and he actually brought helped van morrison get his start a lot of people don't realize that peter wolf is quite the musicologist and in that but we learned so much touring with those guys but that aside we could go out we could open for zz top we could open for heavy bands you know uh, uh i remember being off with almond brothers stuff. and bands that that, that that a lot of artists would get booed off the stage it'd be perceived of as being boy bands or being pop bands or whatever but because of lunatic fringe there was this element of okay we're going to listen to these guys, you know? Uh, and so it kind of had that gravitas to it. You know, it had that weight to it, that song that people went, yeah, okay, well, this is, okay, this is heavy shit. So, it, you know, <laughs> so it, it just, I, I remember we played it at West Point and we didn't know what was going on because the audience was like quiet and attentive. And we finished and it was like, <laughs> hats were being thrown in the air and stuff they were so into it they were just like it was but we we thought well we're playing we, you know we didn't know what to think because the crowd was so so quiet and they're all sitting down kind of politely and stuff but it was um the song just had that weight to it so it, it didn't we could play with any band we could play on any stage with any artist and 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 people would kind of um, give us that 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 room and, and not uh, kind of judge us, um, you know, and, and I don't know if that would have happened without that, that song, you know. Now, Life is a Highway is a huge hit, a mega hit. When you released it, did you think it would be a mega hit? And then once again, how does that change your life when you have, you know, Lunatic Friends was a hit, but Life is a Highway is a mega hit. I mean, how... Right. What did you think when you released that song? Was that was that the original single that you were going to come out with, or did you just what happened? Yeah, I mean, it was it, it, the song was a sketch for a, a long while. Kenny, Kenny, and I kind of went through a change there where we hadn't, um, and it was actually very John Lennonish kind of a, a, a sketch. And uh, and and Kenny um, kept saying, "Now we can't do that. It's too poppy, too poppy for us." And um, I kind of went through this period, you know, after, you know, uh, tears are not enough. So we, we went through this whole period when, when, during the Ethiopia famine when uh, we are the world and tears are not enough was the tears are not enough was kind of the Canadian equivalent of that, you know, and Burton Cummings is on it, Neil Young and, and uh, you know, kind of a Canadian who's who of artists were, were there. And I was kind of included begrudgingly by Bruce Allen because we had broken up with Bruce Allen. It was, you know, a, a bit of an acrimonious split. Uh, we get along now when I see him and stuff, but, 
Uh, and I just, I kind of, like I said, I've always been interested in history. I've always been interested in the world. I thought I wanted to be a journalist and, and a foreign correspondent in particular because I thought that was nothing cooler would be to go to troubled parts of the world and kind of report back what was going on and, and go to some some of those places. And um, and I thought more and more about it. And so I just got involved with World Vision at that point, uh, you know, by sponsoring a child and and i was impressed with the work they did i researched it a bit my wife and i kathy at the time did this and and um i was imp- impressed with the integrity of the of the organization and then um a few years later i did something with skip Prokop, the drummer from lighthouse who i really respected a lot in the poppers he was one of my boyhood heroes of the poppers that is the band and uh, lighthouse so he, he said, would you do this radio show? So we did this radio show for the, the 24-hour famine in uh, Brampton, small little station in Brampton. And we did that, and I went and did that. And then a year later, Terry David Mulligan, a broadcaster from uh, from up here and Much Music, said to me, which is equivalent of MTV in the States, said, do you want to go to Africa with, with World Vision? So I went to Africa, and we went to about six countries, uh, some war zones. And it was, I, man, I, I think... It was pretty, pretty upsetting. It was it left scars on my psyche. Anyways, long story short, I got home. I was trying to deal with this experience of what I went through in Africa, and seeing people die in front of me and stuff. It was it was a pretty heavy experience, and, and, uh, and I'm trying to you know process a lot of it. And I'm thinking about it, and I thought one morning I used to get up at three four in the morning and go down to my little shed, my studio in the shed. So I got up one morning and and. I needed something positive to pull me out of this funk uh, that I was feeling after the trip. And I sat down and I wrote um, the first verse and I sung the first verse. And that is the first verse that is on the single. We never changed it in the studio. And I sung it that morning in that studio. And I wrote that song. I finished that song based on that or that sketch I had had. And then, um, then basically it became what it is. And I felt better about it. It was like a pep talk to myself to pull me out of this funk that I was in. And I felt instantly better. And I th- I've often said that as, as, as singer songwriter, uh, singer songwriters and artists, we are psychologists in a lot of ways. The first and foremost, we're psychologists for ourselves. You know, we, we, we kind of write these songs to kind of get us through these things. And then, then, if you're lucky once in a while, these songs resonate with a lot of people. And that was one of those songs. And I knew things were different. When, when, when we finished that record, I knew this was a different record. And I remember, you know, prior, I know that you interviewed my good friend, Alan Frew, and they very graciously opened for us a few years prior to that. And Alan Frew and those guys were hugely popular, they, they, and, but they had a, a very, very, big female audience and we were you know perceived of as being this grandpa band back then you know we you know we were not considered you know a pop band we weren't we weren't trendy from that point of view on on pop radio and all that stuff and um and chr radio whatever the term was back then and uh, glass tiger were so they had those kind of more mainstream hits and they opened for us. And then it was funny because with Life's a Highway, that kind of all flipped. And here I was uh, seven years older. And all of a sudden, I'm perceived of as being this this pop guy. But, you know, the difference with us was that so our, our audience expanded tremendously. 
so we, we, we had a really wide demographic after that record and uh, a lot of different people would come to our shows and, and there was a frenzy at those shows it was just like being steamrolled I mean we didn't you know I, you're never prepared for that sort of thing Steve you think you are you think that, you know, I drove cab and I did all these things when I was younger and I worked at the loading docks at, at Canada Packers and and I did all this stuff. Uh, you know, I know what it is to be a, a, a working dude and a blue-collar dude and, and then I've gone out and paid my dues and I did all this stuff. And you think you're ready for it, but you're not. I mean, that was a, a pretty that was a pretty heavy three-year, three, four-year period when uh, we toured almost incessantly for uh, three, four years. And um, I enjoyed every second of it. Don't get me wrong, but you're never really ready for, for that kind of, kind of record when it hits. And, and uh, I'm glad it did. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it, it was a big change, you know? So it was, uh, it, and it was funny that way because the audience just expanded and um, things changed. So it was, but it was good. Now, I, I read something that you that you said you didn't like to be referred as a rocker. Right. Why was that? Because you were more of you know because your background was you know you started with the when you played acoustic with folk and yeah. was it what was that? Yeah, I'm I'm low I'm Lowen Davis man you know it's, it's, except it you know it took off it's like um, uh, but it didn't for the longest while while I was doing it. Like I said, I, I came back from LA when I lived down there with my tail between my legs, I couldn't uh, get arrested. And, um, but you keep at it and you keep, keep going at it. And, and so I, I had a lot of pride in, in, in the, uh, the war wounds I had and, uh, uh you know, the, the, the experiences I had as a singer songwriter. And I always, I always identify to being that first and foremost. And I, I, I really think that um, at his essence, Springsteen's the same way, you know, or, or Tom Petty is the same way. I think I think Tom Petty was, was a, just a tremendous songwriter. But there's a, always a very strong uh, troubadour element to what what those guys do. And I, I, I feel the same thing with me. It's like, uh, uh, they're, you know, I always really related to to the singer songwriter from that point of view. And, you know, I keep, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but, you know, keep going back to, to, to Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Neil Young and people of that ilk. Um, and even with the band, there was, there was a real essential kind of roots element with the band and, and folk and Celtic uh, roots mixed with the blues as well. And blues, blues again too. blues are to me, a type of folk music. So I've always, gravitated towards that and that and melded that into what I do. You know, you can hear that blues influence, I guess, in Lunatic Fringe, but also a classical influence. The bum, 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 dun, 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 you know, the, the Harold Horns, as I said earlier. And um, so, yeah, I, I just relate to being a singer-songwriter. To me, um, when you call it, when somebody's called a rocker, it just sounds a little bit more disposable. I, I look at, I look a lot of the great uh, people that are considered rockers, you know, I, I, to me, Robert Plant uh, is a great troubadour, you know, um, uh, a singer-songwriter in a sense. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's um, so yeah, I just tend to relate to the, the term. I mean, I hate labels to begin with, but, uh, but if there's going to be one, then singer-songwriters, a broader label, 
Now, now, what was it like playing with Springsteen? I know you got on stage with him. What is that like? Because he's just such a larger in life. I, 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 it's you know, it's funny you talk about the band because just last night I was watching a documentary about the band on Netflix, and yeah. they interviewed Bruce. And he had said the same thing about the band was just an influence on him. But what was it like when he called you up? I mean, and that must, you know, surprise you. I know Willie Nile, he called Willie Nile up one time when Willie was like, holy crap, he's in Buffalo. He doesn't expect it. <laughs> Springs, he wants him to come up. And he's like, what's going on here? What, ha- what, was, what happened? How excited were you? Incredibly excited. I mean, you know, it, to me, it's like, again, I mean, Bruce isn't that much older than me, but a little bit older and, and uh, that record I think as a performer in particular mm-hmm. he was such an ins- inspiration you know, and I often have compared him as a, as a hybrid between you know uh, between James Brown and Bob Dylan and somebody else said it um, and I, you know so it's obviously something that's pretty self-evident but to me he just brings so much to it, 150% of his energy and his passion to the show but he walks a walk you know he's who he is he comes come off stage and uh, somebody told me, you know, uh, Bill Sainamore, who was, who was their keyboard tech, who used to be our keyboard tech, said to me, you know, Springsteen's got this little portal on stage that, that he, can, he can watch the opening acts through. You know, he's, he's essentially a music fan, you know, as we all are, right? If you're, if you're, if, if you're honest, about, honest about it. And to me, I just looked up to him so much that, that you know, Born to Run was such a seminal record. Darkness on the Edge of Town had, had a big influence on me. Uh, he was inspirational. And the energy and the positivity he brought to it kind of got me out of sort of a, a hey, holding my back to the audience kind of posture that, that, that I, I kind of got out of. He kind of set the stage. I really think, you know, I never saw Ray Davies play back in the late 60s, early 70s, but we toured with them. Uh, matter of fact, I remember the Spectrum show was particularly powerful in Philadelphia, mentioning Philadelphia with, with the Kinks. But I, 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 you wonder, I think everybody was a bit influenced by Springsteen at that point in their performance. You know, even Ray Davies, like what a performer Ray Davies was. So I learned so much from him. And uh, I think Springsteen left his mark on, on everybody that way, that, that, man, you can't go out there and just just give it you know 60 percent at any time if you, if you want to if you want to be doing this you better be you better try to bring it like this guy brings it and only springsteen can bring it the way he brings it but you got to try but anyways you know getting back to that 15 year old he reminds me of being that 15 year old in the garage when when he hits that that stride that trance it's like he's that 15 year old in the garage playing with his friends there's that there's that youth but what, what he does, that youthful energy about what he does. But when he called me up, I mean, he did a 15-minute version of Twist and Shout. Who can do a 15-minute version <laughs> of Twist and Shout and hold everybody's interest? I mean, come on. It's three three simple chords. And he, he just didn't want to go off. And he's soaking wet. And it's just like, uh, and uh, I, uh, his road manager, might have been Lando. Lando was there, but he, he said, Bruce does this or that, go over to his mic and sing on his mic. So I went over and I was singing on it. And I did, that was, it was, it was, it was wonderful, man. It was, you could feel, he's one of those guys that just radiates that energy. And you, you, you feel that energy off some people that, that just, you're drawn in by that energy. And to be that close to him, be singing with him, 
he just has that power. He gets off stage, and it's cold. This is in Moncton, big venue, a magnetic hill venue. He comes off stage. He puts his arms around me and Kathy, uh, and and he's just laughing like Santa Claus. He's going, <laughs> that is, was that a good time? And I'm, going, and I'm just in awe. You know, I'm I'm, I'm going, man. It's just it's just such an honor being up there doing that with you. It's just. I can't tell you. And then I told him, I, I, and he wanted to talk. And, he's, and I said, he's soaking wet and it's cold. Like it's probably 50, you know, low 50s or something. The temperature dropped pretty quick. We're near the ocean and that. And, um, and, and I said, Bruce, you better go get changed. I don't want you to get sick. And he looked at me and he goes, thanks, man. Thanks. And he, and he grabbed me and he hugged me and off he went. And I, he just, the humanity of the guy, you know, it was almost like he was, he was going, wow, that's really considerate. You're being considerate to me. He was saying back, that's the vibe I got from him. And, um, that's what Kathy said to me. She said, you know, I think he was really kind of verklempt that you, you were thinking about him not getting sick and stuff. And cause he would have stood there and talked for half hour. He just had that, that feeling, you know, he just was, was there. So it was just great energy. And I know Bill, said earlier he was looking through that little portal when we were on stage doing our set and he said and bill said come on guys get over here this is the guy that did lunatic french they did lunatic french so he was like a kid going i, I gotta check this song out you know i've never seen them do this song right so um that was pretty cool yeah and and uh but it was a great honor kind of uh working with the guy he's 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 just one of the seminal artists to me. My one of my top three or four artists for sure. Now you said he was a you know very the humanity. Well, you're a big humanitarian. Tell me how you got involved. I mean, I know you got an award uh, from Canada. How did you get involved in all your humanitarian work? Was it starting from when you from the Africa experience that led to Life as a Highway? Yeah, I mean, I think that whole Ethiopian thing and, you know, all the hoopla around, we are the world and, and uh, tears are not enough and all that stuff. It just made me start thinking about stuff more. And I had kids, you know, they were young kids at that, that point, Cody and Evan. And, you know, you just go through that phase. You really do change when you have kids, you know, um, you have kids, Steve. No. So, you, but you do change if you have, you know, I got a buddy whose his wife says he's an artist and, and uh, he's my age, a little bit younger. And she says, why would I have kids? I've got John. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's all I can handle. Um, and, but it, it just kind of, uh, you know, I just, I, I just thought of them a lot uh, through that experience. And that's when I started exploring the possibility and that opportunity came up to go to Africa. And so I did that. And later, you know, we did some back in the, um, you know, after the tsunami thing in, 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 in the two thousands and we did uh, Canada for Asia, um, you know, and, and God bless them. Like Alex Lifeson was front and center. And the two of us kind of spearheaded that. And uh, yeah, I just, I just did a lot of work with them, but primarily with them, some with, with, uh, I've, been very supportive of War Child and, and uh, Amnesty International. I respect a lot their, the work that they've done. And there's a lot of good organizations. When we did Canada for Asia, we incorporated a number of, of uh, 
agencies, uh, NGOs, we call them, uh, charity organizations that, that do um, world, worldwide relief work of different kinds. And uh, so I, I just, you know, it was something that interested me. Like I said, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So in a sense, I, I you know, it could be a voyeur going out there. But when I got out there, I just, it was just so humbling seeing all these people that, that it's their life's work to be working in some of these countries, you know, whether it was, was uh, Ethiopia or, or Mozambique or, or wherever we might be in Rwanda, Malawi. And, you know, we got to, we'd be in there for a few days or a week or maybe a week and a bit, and then we go home. And we leave them on the ground. They're still boots on the ground doing the heavy lifting and the hard work. So it kind of galvanized, galvanized my uh, resolve to help at the time. You know, it was very little. I, you know, like it, it was, it, it was, it, you know, for me to go back and do some media for them and help raise, raise awareness for whatever, uh, uh, you know, was the problem that we were focusing on. Um, it was so little, little really to do. So it, it's almost, it's very humbling to kind of think that you're in a position where you can help in some small way, but they're the ones doing the work, you know, they're the ones that are doing all the hard work and the heavy lifting. So it's the very least you can do is come back and, and help out. So I found it very gratifying. I got way more out of it than they did because it recharged my batteries and it, and it made me feel um, better about what I was doing and, and, uh, and that I could, you know, uh, contribute in some very small way so um i feel very humbled by it and, and uh uh and so I, I guess that's how it happened but yeah my interest was was always there i've always been interested in what's going on in the world and what's going on in other places and um what makes it tick and um uh, the kind of uh, uh, you know what people go through to survive every day and and you know it's so it's it, it it's the least i could do was to help out some small way i remember being in mozambique and seeing a woman and her mom died in her arms or she was a little girl actually and her mom died in her arms from starvation and i thought it was at that i guess psychologists would call it transference uh but i saw my kids in her eyes when she looked up at us what are you what are you doing here with your cameras and your your pens and your paper and and you just feel like so helpless at that point. I saw my kids in, in her eye, and that, that was a pretty powerful powerful experience for me that, as I said, I went home and I, and I kind of processed it and, and um, needed a pep talk for myself to kind of come through it and, and to um, get on with things. You know, I think that you can only – you can't change the world as an individual. All you can do is try to – and this is the, the pretty simple idea – behind life's a highway you just keep your eyes on the road ahead of you because if you take your eyes off the road you're going to crash right and you you try to spread some goodwill and do good by the people you come in contact with as you head down this road then that spreads out through them to other places like a ripple in the like a pebble in the pond and that's really the idea of life's a highway you know you, you 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 move forward on this road and if you get too distracted with all this stuff then you're going to crash you know, you, you just got to do the best you can as an individual moving forward, right? You know, you say that, and it's true. And you've had such a great career. And uh, I got to ask you, though, you've been doing this for over 40 years. How does, how, has your writing style changed at all? Because, you know, you've seen so much. You've done the charity work. You've, you've had the big hit. You know, Lunatic Fringe was different. 
for you now, reflecting on your career, when you sit down to write, are you writing the same way you did as the young Tom Cochran, or are you saying someone who's seen a lot and is concentrating on writing and trying to make a difference, even though you tried to do that earlier? Yeah, I think that um, perhaps my approach to it's changed from the point of view that I've gone back to the singer-songwriter understatement in writing. I'm not afraid of the understatement. I think, you know, once you get into a band, you get back and you start to gather momentum, you know, with Red Rider, for instance, or, or whatever band you might be in, but you get momentum, you kind of get caught up. And, and, and I know this contradicts what I said earlier about not, not emulating other styles or doing this, but you do, you know, I, I always would sing at the top of my range. Uh, I learned how to bring it down, but also soar as well and get up to the top of my range. And 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 the music always had to be, to me, I, I, I wanted stuff to be somewhat epic and anthemic, you know. Now, I'm not as concerned with, with every piece of music being epic. And, and I, that was a transitional thing, too. I think Neruda was a, it was a pretty uh, big step forward for Red Rider, because prior to that, and me as a writer, um, stuff was sort of a bit scattergun. It was, was stuff was over here, over there, a lot of different styles. I mean, there's, you know, there's nothing else on, on as far as I am that's like Lunatic Fringe. I mean, stylistically and image-wise, I, I suppose um, Cowboys in Hong Kong kind of tie into it, but they're, they're different kind of songs, and ships that pass in the night, totally different, right? Strings on it and all that stuff. But, you know, with the Neruda album... You know, there's there's understated moments, um, and and there's there's sort of a sophistication about the record, but it's it's there's a mystery about the record. And then then as I've gotten older through my writing, I think I'm not afraid to, to go back to pretty simple song form and 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 not have to have, have to have things sound too epic all the time. I mean, you you uh, sometimes a softer statement or the more understated statement is is uh, can be a very powerful statement and. Uh, so I'm not afraid to kind of explore, go back and explore some 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 of the the root stuff that as a singer songwriter you start out with where, where things are understated a little bit more right and, and undersung as opposed to singing at the top of the range. All plus it's a lot easier on stage if you're not singing at the top of your range for uh, two and a half hours, right? Now before we go, I was going to ask you talking about stage. What can what can we expect to see? On your show, uh, people's December nineteenth live sessions dot com at eight p.m. Eastern. What are you going to bring to the crowd? I mean, are you, how long are you going to play? Um, what what can people expect? Yeah, I I don't know. I, to, to me, again, um, I think it was just something we we felt like. You know, I felt initially I wanted to do, and and uh, talking to the guys, talking to Kenny and Jonesy, they're excited. You know, they they want to play, and so this is as much uh, an exercise of, um, of therapy for us as, as anything else. We're not, you know, I'm working on some new stuff. We won't be introducing anything new. We're going to be playing pretty much a lot, you know, a lot of the songs people want to hear. And it, it, the choice is ours as to how long we play the this, this set. But I, I would say we're going to probably play it like our usual, you know, mid, midsummer festival set, maybe an hour and a half, maybe an hour, maybe 70 minutes kind of thing. And, and, and play a lot of the songs that people want to hear that they're, they're used to. I won't be introducing anything new as yet. So uh, I don't think so. I mean, I might pull something out and 
might do a Christmas song at the end of the set. I'm not sure, but we're, we're um, and again, we're going to have 50 people there. We'll probably play a couple extra songs for them at the end of it. Um, so yeah, and, and to us, it's going to be a, a chance to um, reacquaint, reacquaint ourselves with each other after being, not doing this for a year. Um, and yeah, so it's a, to me, it's, it's a necessary process because who knows, we, we're hoping Steve is, is all, we all are. I mean, there's a lot of techs in particular that are falling by the wayside that are having to try to find other work somewhere else and may never come back to the business. There's a lot of young artists that were coming out with music that, that aren't really, that don't have, you know, it was a horrible time for this, for COVID to happen for everybody, obviously, but you know, and, and so many people lost their lives through it and have, and, and, and unfortunately will until the vaccine becomes uh, widely distributed. But, you know, we don't know if we're going to play next summer and, and, we're, we're in a pretty big boat with a lot of artists. Right. Um, so, you know, it might be the, the last time we play for a while. So it's going to be a, an important show for us from that point of view. And, and hopefully the hardcore fans that have, that are going to tune in and watch and, uh, watch the streaming. And, and, um, so we're looking forward to it from that point of view. And it's, uh, you know, I thought about, like I said, I thought about doing it at the end of January or into February. I said, but no, let's do it now. And then maybe that'll hold our, us over and hold everybody over until we can get out and hopefully play next summer in July, August. If we don't, we'll be resilient like everybody else and, and tough it out like everybody else, God willing. And, um, uh, but, you know, we, we want people to be safe. We're conscious of, like I said, it's, it's weird because there's so many things you have to be aware of going into this. And we want the optics to be right. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for Jonesy and I not to get on the same mic and sing harmonies together. Or, you know, me to get over there, get in tight with Kenny. But, you know, we're, we're going to have to kind of be mindful of some of that stuff um, for obvious reasons. For you know, But um, it's going to be a fun show. That's awesome, Tom. I want to thank you. I'm probably going to check it out. It's a Saturday night. I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I've been married for a year. Me and my wife don't go out. For our one-year anniversary, we went up to upstate New York because we couldn't fly anywhere. And we just sit around. And she watches Hallmark movies. And I listen to music in the living room. So I'll probably <laughs> get the show. But uh, people... Oh, we're going to have fun. It's yeah, going to be good. Well, people, go check out uh, TomCochran.com. Uh, on Twitter, it's Tom Cochran, M-U-S. And go to Sessions Live to get tickets. And go listen to Tom's music, because it's great. And go listen to some Red Rider, and just listen to everything of his. And uh, listen to my shows. You can find over 800 episodes at coopertalk.net. Uh, you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, it's at coopertalk. And Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.